0: We'll take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me this morning to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Lord willing, we'll begin back our series of John next week. I'll be in John chapter 5, so you can be thinking and preparing about uh, for that. Uh, wonderful story at the beginning of John chapter 5. I can't wait to dig into that this week and bring it to you next week, Lord willing. But this morning, we come to the conclusion of our beginning of the year series called Hindrances to Life, Hindrances to Life. It began on January 8th with a sermon that if you missed, you probably should go back and listen to. It is about the way in which the Lord gives us life through his spirit. Jesus has said to us that he came to give us life and life abundantly. And oftentimes we wonder why that life feels elusive to us. We know the promise. We know Jesus says that that's true, but why am I not experiencing it? And so what we've been talking about the last few weeks is how to remove anything in our heart. That would hinder us from experiencing the fullness of life God has for us. We began by looking at some pictures. One of them is this. This is a picture of the heart without Jesus Christ. This is the life of someone who doesn't know Jesus. There is no life there. You know that it is possible to be walking around physically, but be absolutely dead spiritually. To have no spiritual heartbeat. It's the reason God said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus was missing something. He was missing new birth. He was missing that supernatural work of regeneration where by the power of the gospel and through the Holy Spirit, God takes dead spiritual people and makes them come alive. But that's the life without Christ. It is is dry. It has no spiritual heartbeat. There is no peace and love and life in that heart. But Jesus says in John 7, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink and out of him will flow rivers of living water. And then we get this picture which is life as God has intended for us to have it. This right here is the best way I know to communicate to you the abundant life that Jesus promised. When Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink, out of you will flow rivers of living water. He's inviting us to himself that we would find in him the all satisfying presence of God and so that stream at the at the top symbolizes the flow of God's spirit into our hearts we are now the temple of the living god and so god now resides in us by his spirit and when we are filled with the spirit when we walk in the spirit well then our heart is green it's flourishing it's alive there's a heartbeat there and it's a psalm one bearing fruit in its season its leaf not withering In everything we do, we prosper. Why? Because what's in us is the Spirit of God. And maybe even more beautiful than that is not only God in us, but God through us. And so this represents the fact that when the Spirit of God is working in us, he also flows through us. The people around us don't need more of our flesh. They need more of the Spirit. They don't need us. They need God in us. And so as we walk with Jesus Christ and we start to be filled with his spirit, the result is is that everyone around us is blessed and helped. Oftentimes we wonder why there's so much conflict around us and James 4 talks about this. It's because of what's going on inside of us. And so this is the life that God intended us to live, a life filled with his spirit, his spirit filling every crevice of our heart, satisfying every longing and desire and flowing out of us. But this is more reality. The reality of our life, because we live in a broken world and we're sinful people, is that we often have things in our life that are hindering us from the flow of God's presence. Some of them are big, some of them are small, some of them are big sins that we know about, some of them are small things that we don't know about, but every sin hinders the flow of God's presence. And in the same way, with a physical heart, if there is a blockage of flow of blood to the heart, it's possible for parts of the physical heart to die. And so it is, there are parts of our life that can be really unhealthy and stop having life and no longer be thriving, why? Because there's no flow of God's spirit there. And so because we believe that life with Jesus is better, because we believe that Jesus is the only one that has life and peace, and because we believe that there is no other life worth living but a life with Jesus Christ, because we have tasted of the other life and have found it unsatisfying, we want to remove any hindrance from the life of God in us that's the goal. We want to remove any hindrance to the life of God. But this image reminds us of something. It reminds us that sin is a very real and very present danger in the life of every believer. I mean, this reminds us that sin is an issue for those who have been born again By Jesus Christ, who know Jesus Christ, walking with Jesus Christ, this reminds us that sin is still a very real present danger in the life of every believer. This is why we have Romans 6 and 7. I don't know what we do without Romans 6 and 7. I mean, I hate it for Paul, but I love Paul talking to us about his own struggle with sin. I love Paul talking about his own frustration when he longs to do what is right, but still finds himself doing what is wrong. I love it because if we know Paul felt it, it certainly makes us understand why we felt it as well. But see, passages like Romans 6 and 7 remind us of the constant battle of sin. They remind us that sin is serious and life is war and we must constantly be waging war on sin. Romans 6 and 7 remind us of the truth of what the Puritan John Owen said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. So that's true. If we are not killing sin, if we're not actively and aggressively trying to deal with the sin in our life, then that sin will kill us. And that's what that last picture that last picture showed. It is a heart that is being destroyed by sin. It is a heart that is being killed by sin, piece by piece, sin by sin, moment by moment. It's usually a heart that is failing to wage war on sin. And it's true that when we come to Christ, we do sin less, but we're not sinless. We're not sinless when we come to Christ, but we do sin less. And the truth is, and we've talked about this week after week, the more we walk with Jesus and the more we understand the Spirit of God in us, the more we actually begin to feel the seriousness of our sin and the weight of our sin and the conviction of our sin. Why? Because only when we come to Christ do we become the temples of the holy God. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us. Therefore, the presence of sin is going to do something to us. It's going to grieve our heart. We weren't grieved by sin before we were saved. We didn't like its consequences. We hated the con- Any unbeliever doesn't like the consequences of sin when they make a total mess of their lives. Certainly they hate that. But there's no real grieving of sin and hatred for sin itself and seeing sin for what it is. No, that only comes in the life of a believer. So what that means is that as a believer, not only is sin a very real and present danger, Conviction of sin is a very real, gracious gift. And we have seen every single week, the presence of sin in our life hinders us from experiencing the abundant life that God has for us. The truth is, we're going to sin. We're going to sin today, and we're going to sin tomorrow, and we're going to sin the next day and the next day, and we're going to sin every day until Jesus takes us home. And one of the reasons we so look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ is because we're just sick of sin. We just, we long to be done with sin. We just hate sin. We see its effects on our life and we see how our personal decisions of sin impact so many else people around us and we just hate sin and we long for Christ to return. Why? Not only because the world is broken and life is hard, but because we hate sin and we want to be done with it. But until that moment, we're going to sin. And so if it is guaranteed, first John one eight that we are going to sin, and if we say we don't sin, we're a liar, and sin hinders the flow of the life of God in us, it seems that the really important question is this What do we do when we sin? What do we do when we sin? And the reason it's important to ask that question is because as we've been talking about hindrances to life like worldliness and pride and apathy last week, I want to conclude this series by telling you that one of the greatest hindrances to the life of God in you, one of the greatest hindrances to the experience of the abundant life is unconfessed sin. It is sin that is not dealt with. But what do we do with it? Well, we really only have three options. We can ignore our sin, which I would say is, is what most believers seem to be in the habit of doing. Let me just ask you a question. When is the last time you've thought seriously about sin? When is the last time that you have repented of sin and confessed sin? When is the last time you took time to stop and to think about sin and to ask the Lord to expose sin and to reveal sin? When is the last time you felt not only grieved over the sin, but have dealt with sin If that's not a normal part of your life, then you're ignoring sin. Like someone who would ignore some physical ailment, thinking that it's nothing to the point in which finally when they do get it diagnosed, it's too late. It's already taken over. That's what we seem to do with sin. We just ignore it and act like it doesn't exist. But you know that acting like sin doesn't exist doesn't make sin go away. It might make us feel better to be oblivious towards the reality of sin in our life. But the truth is, it it brings a lot of hurt and pain in our lives. And oftentimes, our choice is just to ignore that it even exists. And if you're not in the habit of regularly battling sin and confessing sin, then you're probably ignoring it. Another thing we can do is we can just hide it. So this is someone who knows that there's sin and doesn't like the sin but is not willing to make the sin known, not willing to confess it to God or others, terrified of being known and what they don't realize is that yes, coming clean with sin will often have some hard consequences but the consequences of confession are much less than the consequences of not confessing. So whatever fear you might have this morning about confessing sin and getting clean before God and others, I assure you that whatever pain that causes will not be as great as the pain of a life of unconfessed sin. Hiding it is not a good option. So the only other option is to confess it. To confess it which is exactly what God calls us to do with our sin. He calls us to confess our sin. We don't want to live with the hindrance of unconfessed sin. And James 4 shows us kind of what that life looks like. What does it look like to live a life that takes sin seriously and deals with sin? And I will say to you, this is a surprising text of Scripture. I think for all of us, it's surprising. I don't know any believer who wouldn't have to wrestle with this text But maybe for those who regularly come to Prince, it's more surprising because our DNA at Prince is lights up, loud music, Christ exalting, happy, thankful for what the Lord's doing. We want to be a healthy family of faith that exalts Jesus Christ. I mean, we want every person that walks into this church to think it must be good to know Jesus Christ. By the joy in the room and the joy in the singing and the expression on our faces, we won't be able to know it's good to know Jesus. And that's a part of the culture I want to create here. And as much as I think that's good and right, sometimes because of that, we come to a text like this and have no idea what to do with it. It just doesn't fit into our understanding of life with Jesus. Let me start in verse 1, but our emphasis will be on verses 8 and 9. It says this in James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you, meaning most of our external conflict is not other people's problems, it's a problem inside of us. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture said he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? What that means is God longs for you. He longs for every part of you. He's jealous for you. And verse 6 says, but he gives more grace, which means there is sufficient grace for every sin. And so this morning we're going to talk about sin, and it's going to be hard to talk about sin, and the Lord's going to convict you of sin. You just need to be reminded that there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. There is sufficient grace for whatever sin. The one this morning who might think there is no possible way there's enough grace for me, I assure you there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. But he doesn't give it to everybody. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, those who come clean and get right. So submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We talked about that last week. Now here's our text for this morning. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, what do you do do with that? Like, these are no less commands than the command in verse 7 to submit to God and then to resist the devil, and then in verse 8 to draw near to God and to humble ourselves. We can't act like there's command, 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 and then maybe weird suggestion. This is equally a command. And so the same God in this text that commands us to draw near to him, which seems reasonable, is the same God that commands us to be wretched and mourn and weep. It's hard to know what exactly to do with that. And so I think one of our first responses is to say, well, this text has to be for unbelievers. I mean, that seems like what an unbeliever should do. An unbeliever should weep and mourn and be miserable over their sin, but, but not a believer. But it's not a text for unbelievers. We know this because of the whole context of of James. Nineteen times James refers to those he's writing to as brothers. Eight times he says, my brothers. Three times he says, my beloved brothers. And in the Bible, you don't just walk around calling people bro. A brother is someone who has given their life to Jesus Christ and gotten to a right relationship with God the Father. That's, That's a brother and sister right there. So he's not just throwing around brother. He is referring to those who know Jesus Christ. This is a text for believers. Every command here is a command for you. It's a command for me. It's a command for everyone who knows the Lord. To which we say, but, but wait. Doesn't Romans 8.1 say there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Wait, didn't we just sing no guilt in life, no fear in death? Don't we believe that, Every sin, past, present, and future is forgiven in Jesus Christ. How are all of those things true and then this true? That's a hard question. It's an important question. I mean, what does the presence of sin mean for us as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? How can all of those promises be true and yet there still need to be this kind of response over sin in our heart? There's a minister by the name of Stephen Lawson who really helped me understand this concept. And I want to tell you the distinction that I learned from him. And I would encourage you, if you can, to write this down. Because this really is an important issue. An issue in which I think we're often confused. But for your justification and sanctification, this is important. Here it is. The moment we come to Christ, we receive judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness. What that means is this. When you come to the place in which you acknowledge your sin and you know that you cannot save yourself, when you acknowledge that Jesus Christ alone made the perfect sacrifice for sin and you can only be saved not by trusting what you did, but by trusting what he did. And when you cast yourself upon the mercy of God and look to Jesus Christ and submit yourself to God saying, I'm ready to trust and follow Jesus. Listen, at that moment, you are declared righteous by a holy God. It's called justification. It's a legal term, which means God has declared you right. It's judicial. You receive judicial forgiveness. You stand before a judge guilty of all of your sins, separated from God. And at the last moment, Jesus Christ steps in and says, I'll pay the penalty for all of those sins. And so all of those sins were put on Jesus. His righteousness was credited to you. You are declared righteous by a holy God. That's what it means to be saved judicially forgiven and in that moment you go from death to life you go from slavery to freedom you go from unrighteousness to righteousness you go from being an orphan to being a child you are in the family of God God is your father you're restored in right relationship with God and nothing can ever change that if you have been justified by a holy God, nothing can change your standing before God because God has declared you righteous. You are a part of the family. You are in the relationship with God. But can I just say this? There has to be a moment in which you do that. There has to be a moment in which you do that. We had a baptism in our last service and the man's testimony was, I've been around these things all my life. But it wasn't until he met with one of our pastors for his membership interview that he realized there had never been a moment in his life. He shared this. There'd never been a moment in his life in which he decided he was going to trust Christ and submit to Jesus Christ and his authority over his life. You can know all the things, you can quote the gospel, you can tell Bible stories, but at some point you have to come to a moment which you say, Jesus, I'm ready to give my life to you. I need you to save me. You call upon the name of the Lord and when you do that, and only when you do that are you declared righteous before a holy God. But you have to have that moment, judicial forgiveness. But listen, once you come to Christ and you sin, you don't need judicial forgiveness, you need parental forgiveness. Get that down. You need parental forgiveness. You don't need forgiveness to get you to heaven. You don't need forgiveness to make you declared righteous before God, but you do need forgiveness so that you might have relational closeness to God, to have intimacy with God, to enjoy the presence of God. You see, when the prodigal son left home, he was still a son. He still had a relationship with the Father, but as he walked away, step by step, getting further and further away from the Father, making those decisions to sin, with every physical step he took, he was also taking a relational step because with his physical steps of walking away from the Father, he was relationally making more and more distance with the Father. Was he still a son? Yes. Was he still welcome home? Yes. But was there relational distance? Absolutely. Was there a lack of closeness? Yes. Was there a lack of intimacy? Yes. If I sin against Andrea, my wife, then we're still married. There's still an unbreakable covenant before God. What God has joined together, let no men separate. And so we still have this covenant with one another, but there is a loss of intimacy and closeness. Can I get an amen? This is true. If I sin against Andrea, there's a loss of closeness. We're still married, but it's hurt the intimacy that we have. And so we need parental forgiveness. We need this relational forgiveness with God. I mean, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't even understand the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, a prayer only for believers. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive others of their sins and trespasses. What that means is that the life of a believer is a life of continual confession to God and giving forgiveness to others. It is a life of receiving and giving forgiveness as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We continue to seek forgiveness. Even though we've been declared righteous before God, we need parental, relational forgiveness. Think about Psalm 32. You know the story of King David, a man after God's own heart. No question, he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. No question. But man, he made a mess of his life, didn't he? He took a woman that wasn't his wife and then did what people so often do when they begin to walk in sin. They think that walking in further sin is going to help. When in reality, you just make things worse and worse and worse and worse. And so David, trying to cover up a sin, committed another sin by killing the woman's husband. Sin after sin, compounding sin. A man after God's own heart, loved by God, treasured by God. Taught us more about intimacy with God than anyone else in all of the Bible. And there are two Psalms we have, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, that show us his response to his own sin. As a believer, Psalm 32 says this blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven meaning happy is the one whose sins are forgiven whose sin is covered blessed happy is the man against whom the lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit listen to this for when i kept silent silent about my sin my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer But I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So here's David, a man after God's own heart, who sinned and felt the heaviness of unconfessed sin, but chose to bring that to the Lord and the heaviness was replaced once again with the life and joy and peace that comes from those who confess their sin. And so David needed that parental forgiveness, that relational closeness restored there's an old hymn that few of you may remember it was titled nothing between it says this nothing between my soul and my savior so that his blessed face may be seen nothing preventing the least of his favor keep the way clear let nothing between I don't want anything between me and the Lord. I don't want to lose any of his sense of favor. I don't want to lose closeness. I don't want to lose intimacy with the Lord. So I don't want anything between, in the same way, I don't want anything between my wife and I. I don't want anything between me and my Savior. Keep the way clean, it says. Keep the way clean so that there would be nothing between. Going back to our image, sin keeps something between. And you realize that the Bible is filled with examples and verses about the consequences of unconfessed sin in the life of a believer. I think we need to be reminded of these because we tend to hide and ignore our sin and fail to realize that there are very real consequences. Even though you've been judicially forgiven, there is very real consequences for unconfessed sin in a believer's life. Unconfessed sin kills our joy. It makes us feel distant from God. It causes us to lose a sense of God's presence and closeness. Listen to this. Unconfessed sin calls emotional, spiritual, and physical exhaustion. Psalm 32. Unconfessed sin causes spiritual, emotional, and physical exhaustion. Unconfessed sin causes a loss of peace with God. Psalm 66 says, unconfessed sin can hinder our prayers. 2 Timothy 2.20 says it hinders our effectiveness. It hinders our ability to be a useful vessel to the Lord. Hebrews 12 says even as a believer, our unconfessed sin brings the discipline of God the Father in our life. You know what James 5 says? James 5 says there are people that are not receiving physical healing because of unconfessed sin. There are people who will never receive physical healing because of unconfessed sin. It hinders the flow of God's spirit. It brings unnecessary pain and suffering in our life. It consumes our minds. It keeps us from intimacy with God and with others. It keeps us from the fruit of the spirit, making us harsh and impatient, unloving and unkind. Psalm 51 says unconfessed sin keeps us from being able to sing and rejoice and praise the Lord. You know, what the really common things, and you get this from Psalm thirty-two and many other places, is that there are many people that struggle with depression because of unconfessed sin. There are people who have very real emotional, spiritual depression, which then has all these psychosomatic symptoms. So then, all these physical ailments come out of the emotional depression. But the solution, not for all, but for many, is confession of sin. And so listen, you can take as many pills as you want to take, but for some, their depression will never be solved unless they get right with God. And so we just mask this depression with a thousand other things. This is not true for everyone. But for many people, the cause of depression is hiding and ignoring sin. I don't care how many pills the doctor gives you, you will never feel the weight lifted until it's lifted by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is for a believer. I'm not talking about unbelievers. A believer can experience deep weight of physical, emotional, spiritual heaviness and depression because the sin has not been confessed. That's why Proverbs 28.3 says, the one who covers his sin will not prosper. If you need to remember a verse today, can you remember Proverbs 28.3? The one who covers his sin will not prosper. So that's why we need James 4. You say, why do we need James 4? We need James 4 because James 4 is a radical call to repentance. It is a call to be serious about sin. It is a call to think about sin the way God thinks about it. It is a call to see all that God has for us, his life, his peace, his joy, and recognize that sin keeps us from experiencing any of that. Look at what it says. It says to cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, verse Cleanse your hands and purify your heart, meaning deal with both external and internal sins, not only the sins of the hands, but the sins of the heart. I believe without question that when James is writing James 4, right here, he's thinking about Psalm 24. There's a lot of reasons to believe that. But Psalm 24, 4 says this: Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And you know what that means? Who might be close with God? Who might be intimate? who might know him, who might hear his secrets, who might experience the joy of fellowship with him, who might know his peace and his presence and his protection, well, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's who ascends the hill of the Lord. And so if I want to ascend the hill of the Lord, if I want intimacy with God and everything that comes from that, well, I have to to be clean before God to enjoy intimacy with God. And so if there's no confession in my life, I will never be able to ascend the hill of the Lord. It says there at the end of that verse, it says to stop being double-minded, purify your hearts, you double-minded. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what he meant by double-minded, and I I think I've got it. It's a little complicated. I need you to stay with me this morning. What he means by being double-minded is not being single-minded. Did you catch that? It's deep. You know what it means to be single-minded? It means there's one thing I want most, and that's Jesus. I've tasted the other and it's no good. I know the misery of sin. I know the lingering consequences of sin, even for a believer. I know what it's like to not walk with the Lord. I know what it's like to go days and weeks without reading my Bible. I know what it's like to sin against my wife. I know what it's like to sin against my church. I don't want that anymore. I want Jesus. I single-mindedly want Jesus. There's nothing I want more than to ascend the hill of the Lord. Single-minded is saying, I just want Jesus. Double-minded is saying, I want a little Jesus, but I want a little of the world as well. I want to hold on to worldliness. I want to come to church and I want to be in a group and, and I want to have some church relationships and I do want some Jesus. I know that he's good, but I'm unwilling to give up the other. Well, that's being double-minded. And there is no peace and there is no rest for someone who lives double-minded. Because you will never experience the joy that Jesus has to offer if you want to keep your sin and you want to keep your relationship with Jesus Christ. It just work. So he's calling us to be single-minded, and then he says this. He says, look at that in verse nine, be wretched and mourn and weep. Now what you're thinking is, Pastor, I know that you know these things, and so certainly you know that in the Greek, it doesn't mean be wretched. Certainly it couldn't mean be wretched. And so I'm here to tell you, you're right. It, It doesn't mean exactly that. It means something worse. The word be wretched there, means to me miserable and unhappy. Listen to me. There is a command in the infallible inspired word of God for the believer in Jesus Christ to be miserable and unhappy. Why? Because of sin. Your sin should make you miserable and happy. You don't live a life of sin and just walk around with laughter. No, you're miserable and unhappy because of sin. That's proof that the spirit of God lives in you. That there's a misery and an unhappiness that comes when we walk in sin, we feel the weight of it. We don't ignore it any longer. And then he says this to mourn and weep. Don't be lighthearted about sin. Don't be trite about that thing that's killing your soul. Stop walking around laughing when there's sin that's hindering you from the presence of God and affecting everyone else around you. And can I just remind you at this moment, one of the reasons we're miserable And mourn and weep over our sin is because, as we say all the time at Prince, your sin is not just your problem. That sin that you're hiding will not just affect you, it will affect everyone around you. And one of the greatest things that keeps me from sin and from confessing sin is because I don't want to hurt you and I don't want to hurt my family. My sin affects you as the pastor, my sin affects you, my sin affects my wife and my five children. It affects everyone who's in a relationship with me. And I want to fight sin because I don't want it myself, but I also don't want everyone who to be affected by my refusal to get humble and confess sin. So you say, why is would a believer feel this way? Why would a believer be miserable and weep and mourn? Why? Because what we want is intimacy with God, and we hate sin, and we want to fight sin, and we want to grieve over our sin. We want to confess sin. Why? Because we want to be single-minded. We want Jesus. And if I want Jesus, and I know that sin hinders my experience with Jesus, then I'd get serious about sin and weep and mourn over it. If you have your Bible, would you turn over just a few pages to the right to 1 John 1? Just a few pages to the right, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and then go right there to 1 John chapter 1. It's important for us to look at this because in some way, James four gives us the heart of repentance, the heart of how we should feel about our sin. But first John one gives us more practical insight into what we do about it. it. Says this in verse five, John one, five, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There's no sin in God. He's totally and completely pure. Verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if you're saying, I'm intimate with God, I have fellowship with him, I'm right with God, but you're walking in sin, you're a liar. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is going to family group, it's going to community group, it's doing all the things, coming to church, acting like we're good, we're in fellowship with God, but we're walking in darkness. Darkness means you're walking in hidden sin. Well, that's hypocrisy. You're a liar if you say that. Because you can't be in fellowship with God while having hidden sin. But, he says... If we walk in the light, verse 7, that means walk in openness and honesty before God and others. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. So once I get open about sin, I bring it to the light. My relationship with God and my relationship with others can begin to be right and restored. I find verse 8 a strangely encouraging verse. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're going to sin and I'm going to sin. And if you say you're not a sinner, you're a liar, which makes you a sinner. We're all going to sin. What do we do with it? Verse 9, if we confess our sins. That word confess there means to agree with God. It means to call sin what it is, to see sin as God does, to name it, to be specific, to not be generic about it, but be specific. If we confess that sin, if we stop ignoring it and hiding it, And the reason it says confess our sin is because so often we take sin and we call it a deficiency or or some issue we have. So let me say this to you. If all you ever have is issues or deficiencies, there may be no help for that. But if you call it a sin, I know there's help for that. There may be no solution, solution for your deficiency, but there's a solution for your sin. So by calling it sin, you know that there's a way out. You don't have an issue. You've got sin. And so he says, if we confess our sin, if we call it sin and agree with God about it, if if we start thinking this way, not ignoring this any longer, then what happens is we get cleansed from it. And immediately we feel terrified. This is the enemy who wants us to be terrified of what's going to happen if I confess a sin. To which I say again, I promise you the pain of confessing is less than the pain of not confessing. You don't fix the sin by adding more sin to it. You don't fix the problems by hiding it more. You come clean. And the reason you should not be afraid is because of the character of God. He is faithful and just. He does what he says he's gonna do. He loves you. He's made a commitment to you. He's committed to your goodness and holiness. He is perfect and kind and good. And based upon his character, we know that he is waiting to heal us and restore us and give us victory. And he will, as it says here, forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So as we confess it before him, he restores us back into right relationship with the father. He makes us useful. He removes the heaviness that is on our soul because of our sin. And the beginning of renewed fellowship with God and others, the beginning of renewed fellowship with God and others is the confession of our sin, walking in the light. I want to say one thing more to you this morning, and I think it's important because it's not enough just to say out loud the sin. We have to confess, but confession is a part of something bigger. So it's not enough just to say, I did this, I'm sorry. That's not enough. I think some of us wonder why we're not getting rid of our sin. We're not getting victory over sin. We say it to God. We say, God, I'm sorry. And then we do it again. And then we say to others, I'm sorry, I did it again. And well, that's because confession is a part of a broader issue. And that is the issue of genuine repentance of sin. You see, God is calling us to repentance. James 4 is a call for radical repentance. That's the proper response. It's not enough just to say you did it. You must repent from it. You might have noticed if you've been here the last few weeks, I've been quoting a lot of Puritans, and the reason is because you can read 40 books written in the last 20 years and no one talks about these things. No one talks about these things. And someone said to me this week, but that reading the Puritans is so hard, to which I said, if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get diamonds. If all of your reading is raking, well, you'll get leaves. That's fine, but dig a little deeper and get diamonds. And so when you dig into the Puritans, you get really good stuff. So I was reading this week Thomas Watson on the nature of repentance. and I want to end by giving you these things because they're important. If you have any ability to write these down, I want to encourage you to do it because I've never heard anyone say more what repentance is more clearly than this. He says first, repentance is seeing sin. Seeing sin. Not seeing everyone else's sin, but seeing your sin. We have this unbelievable ability to notice everyone else's sin. It's almost fun. That's how evil we are. Like we just love to point at everybody else's sin. And the reality is true repentance begins with seeing my sin, not blaming everyone else. Even if I've been sinned against deeply, I have to start by seeing my sin and acknowledging my sin and thinking about it and taking note. The Puritans used to talk about keeping a sin list, like a short list of sin, meaning they would advise you to sit down like once a week and write down sins. Because if you don't see it, you're not going to confess it and get over it. See sin, number one. Number two, feel sorrow for sin. Number two, feel sorrow for sin. That's James 4. Mourn over it. Grieve over it. Psalm 51, David's confession, verse 7 says, a true sacrifice to the Lord is a broken and contrite heart. Let your heart be broken because of sin. Feel sorrow for it. Number three, confess sin. Be honest with God. Be honest with others you want to get right with God and others, you've got to name it. You've got to stop hiding it. You've got to come clean. And so we see it. We feel sorrow for it. We confess it. Listen to this one. We'd only get this from a Puritan. Feel shame for your sin. You say, well, wait a minute. I I thought I didn't have any more shame. Here's what he says. He says, it is a great shame for a believer not to be ashamed of sin. We should feel ashamed of our sin. Now, listen, We don't run and hide in shame like Adam and Eve. We bring our shame into the light and get forgiveness, but we should feel some shame in our life. One of the things Watson says that's so beautiful, listen, he says this. He says, the very blood that flows through our heart, the very blood of Jesus is the same blood that should make us blush over our sin. If the blood of Jesus Christ is in your heart, then that blood will rise to your face and you will blush because of your sin. He says, see it feel sorrow for it, confess it, feel shame. The fifth one is this, to hate it, hate sin. God hates it, you have to hate it. You've got to despise it. You've got to get angry about what it does to your life and others. You've got to think about how sin has destroyed your life and how it can destroy your family's life, how it can destroy your future college students and students. Sin can destroy your future. Will God forgive you? Yes. Will the consequences remain? Yes. And so hate it, get mad about it. I'm working on a new book right now for men, and one of the chapters is on this idea that God will never truly use a person until they start to develop some righteous indignation. They gotta get mad about something. I'm talking about a righteous, holy anger. Anger over sin, and anger over what's happening in our culture, and anger over the demonic attack on our family. Like, you gotta get angry about that. And so it is, you gotta get angry about sin, you gotta hate it. You gotta see it for what it is. It is destroying everything God wants to do in your life. Hate it, despise it, wage war on it. The final thing he says is this. We not only see it and feel sorrow and confess and feel shame and hate it, but we turn from sin. It's not just a matter of the heart, but it's a practical running away from sin. It's not just turning from sin, but turning to Christ where there is new life. And that's why James 4.10 is the perfect ending that You have to humble yourself before God and others if you're ever going to get the forgiveness and grace and help of God. See, but here's the beauty of it. Is that repentance is the way that we begin the Christian life. You have to begin by a repentance of sin. Get judicial forgiveness. But but can I be clear? Repentance is the way you continue to walk the Christian life. Every day of our life is repentance. You should repent today and tomorrow and the next day. And, And until the last breath you're still repenting of sin. Why? Because you want that relational closeness. But here's the beauty of it. What we do is we take that weeping and mourning and misery over sin that is real and that heaviness and that weight and that hatred for sin and we deal with it, we come clean with it before God and others and what we do then is we step back in to the relational intimacy with God where there is joy and peace and an awareness of his presence and a sense that I am right with him. And as painful as this is, it is immediately overshadowed by the joy of a faithful and just God who will cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you will come clean. That's the gospel. Here's how we're going to respond this morning. It seemed foolish to command, see these things commanded in scripture and not to practice this for a moment. And so if you received this thing here, this repentance worksheet, when you came in, take it out if you would. If you didn't receive it, you can step out. I think there's more in the back, I'm sure. But it begins with 1 John 1, 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. And then here's a list of sins. Listen, can you, I just, I want you to not look at this for just a minute. Look at me. I've got one more minute. Listen, look at me. I know we know our sins. So what is the use of looking at a list of hundreds of sins to feel more guilty? Here's the use We're not used to doing this. We're not used to thinking very seriously about sin. We're not used to sitting down and making a list of our sin. We're not used to taking sin very seriously. Maybe one or two, but we don't think this way. And because we don't think this way, we've got to overcompensate by that by helping us see the amount of sins that are probably present in our life. And so we look through them, and we pray through them, and we come to the very end down there. After you've agreed with God, God, I know this sin is in my life, well, we claim the promise of 1 John, and we thank him for his forgiveness. We turn in repentance with a desire for the lordship of Jesus Christ, and then we clear our conscience, meaning we seek forgiveness from anyone we've sinned against. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you some time to do this. We're going to take about five minutes. If you want to get on your knees, as our normal habit, that would be great. If you want to come kneel here, and I'm just going to ask you to work through this. I'm going to then come up, and we're just going to have a little extended time of encouraging worship at the end of doing this together. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to release you to take some time to do this. Father, we pray that what we would feel in this moment is your goodness and kindness. For the one here who hasn't had that moment where they've trusted Christ, may right now be the day. May they get on their knees knowing there's nothing else to do but just call upon the name of the Lord. Trust Jesus. May they do that in this moment. Get down on their knees, dead and up alive. May they do that in this moment. But may all of us be serious about what's serious to you. Remove those hindrances because what we want most is your life in us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to get on your knees, you're welcome to do that. If you want to be seated, that's fine. Let's take some time and navigate through that.